Turn again to Mark chapter 3. Gospel of Mark, we're at chapter 3. Last time, a couple of weeks ago, we ended with the two stories that uh, end in chapter 2, begin of chapter 3, regarding uh, the Sabbath. Today we'll read the entire third chapter and again rehear that first uh, little story, the first six verses, but we'll begin at one and go to the end, Mark chapter 3. Listen, this is God's Word. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Then he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, the, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis popularized the question, is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? Sometimes expressed as, was he either bad, mad, or God? All three of those descriptions of Jesus show up here in Mark chapter 3. And everyone else in the story here and in the rest of the gospel will need to make up their own minds about who Jesus is, what to believe concerning him. But it's also the same question we face. As we would need to settle for ourselves who we believe Jesus to be. And so I trust this chapter will expand our understanding of who we are as those who belong to Jesus. This chapter has uh, six distinct episodes in it, or five if you want to collapse the two references to his family waiting outside the house. The stories take place in four different locations. First, the synagogue, then the seashore, then a mountaintop, and finally back at the house in Capernaum where Jesus was staying. And we know Mark's gospel moves quickly, and at first you might wonder if there's a common thread or a line or some kind of connection uh, holding this all together, this, these various stories, and I think there is. So this morning I want to do something just a little different than normal. I want to skim through the whole chapter, location by location, and episode by episode, and story by story, making a few comments along the way. But then I want to spend more time at the end doing what I think Mark is actually doing in tying this all together for you. Driving home Mark's point that you are a new people Welcome to the family. First story begins in the synagogue. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth reminding ourselves Jesus was changing the way God's people were to look at the Sabbath. And he was doing a number of things. He was stripping away all of the extra layers of laws and regulations the Pharisees had, been, had, had accumulated and had growing onto the original law. But he was also coming to say in some way, he is the new Sabbath and Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, I argued back then, was doing a couple of things, restoring 
uh, our sense of what the Sabbath is right back to creation and reminding us of that pattern of work and rest. But he's also highlighting the pattern as it was renewed and expressed at Mount Sinai in the Exodus, that we gather to worship the Lord God in celebration of his great deliverance of his people from their slavery. But Jesus was doing even more than that. He was reminding us this day, today now, points to a greater, more final deliverance. Now the first day of the week because we celebrate his resurrection from the dead. It's a greater, more final, more ultimate cause for worship and celebration. And it's a greater, more final rest we look forward to now in his second coming. But as Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath in the synagogue, we notice he draws a reaction. His claim to be Lord of the Sabbath draws the hostility of the Pharisees to a point where they are now plotting with people in power or people very close to the people in power to kill him. Now, in the second scene, verses 7 through 12, Jesus is down by the seashore. And people are flocking all over, from all over to see him and to hear him. They've heard about him. They want to now be with him. And we have to notice the contrast between these crowds and the religious leaders, the religious leaders who wanted to kill him. These, this crowd wants to be near him. So much so, and so large is the crowd, Jesus has his disciples come up with kind of a backup plan uh, to have a boat ready that he can jump into because he's being crushed by the people. But don't miss the real point that Mark is making here. Not only is a crowd large, but see where they're from. As he describes it, they come from the north all the way to the south. They come from... Uh, Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, which is kind of the land of Edom beneath. And they come from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. This is no longer the crowd from Capernaum and the towns around it. His fame and his reputation are spreading Mark describes these crowds coming from the north and the south, from the east and from the west, and even from across the Jordan River. If I could put it this way, they are coming to him from the river to the sea. In other words, they're coming from everywhere in Israel and, Judea, or, and Judah, from the edges of the entire land as it had been defined and constituted in those glory days under David and Solomon. And as the people flock to see him, the evil spirits recognize him. They call out to him, not so much in worship, I think, here as in defiance. You are the Son of God, and Jesus tells them to be silent. In the third scene, Jesus is on a mountaintop, 13 to 19. From among all the multitudes and the crowds of people following him, Jesus chooses, selects, according to his desire, Mark tells us, 12 friends. 
and they're named for us. And while they are identified by name, we must not miss their designation or their title. Here first in in the New Testament, really, he appoints them and he calls them apostles. An apostle is someone who's sent on a mission or an assignment, and just a little hint here of what these men will become what mission they are sent on, what message they will carry with them, under whose authority they go. And the one, of course, who sends them. For the moment, let's satisfy ourselves with this. Jesus calls them to himself and they came to him. He appoints them and names them apostles. But notice why or what comes next. So that they might be with him and that he might send them. Send them out to preach, to have authority over demons. As their names are listed, we notice it's a bit of a motley crew. There's the core four, uh, Simon, given the name Peter, the brothers James and John. Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. Further down the list, we have Levi, though he's now called Matthew. He's a tax collector. He is a sinner or was. He had worked for the Romans and who is despised by his fellow countrymen, and he is now working alongside someone named Simon the Zealot, a Jewish nationalist who would have especially chafed under the Roman rule and oppression. And then last in the list is Judas, who in a bit of foreshadowing, Mark lets us know, will be the disciple who will betray Jesus. The final three scenes are set at the house where Jesus was staying. And the first and the last scene describe his family and an interaction Jesus is going to have uh, with them early about them. But notice they have come to Jesus because people are saying Jesus has lost his mind They're coming to seize him because they believe it. But as Mark tells the story, not only of them coming, but then in the reaction or response at the end of the chapter, he brackets those two stories with an extended story and set of exchanges between the scribes from Jerusalem and Jesus. So we'll look at that first. We learn now that it's not just the religious authorities and the preachers and the rabbis and the teachers and the scribes in Capernaum who are taking an interest in Jesus. Now we have the big guns. They are coming from Jerusalem, from the temple, and they are coming to not only challenge Jesus, but to discredit him. Their central claim is that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul the prince of demons. And Jesus, notice, immediately calls him Satan. Same, same person, same demon. But it's a remarkable exchange, really. Jesus has been, notice, casting out demons. He's been casting out evil spirits. They have identified him as a son of God. And he's told them to be silent. And now these scribes come and say, Jesus is demon-possessed. And not just by any demon, but by the daddy of them all. So Jesus counters, well, how 
can Satan be against Satan? In other words, what he has been doing, along with his preaching, in his miracles, especially concentrated in Mark here on casting out demons, how can Satan be against Satan? In other words, he's saying what he has been doing is directly opposed to the mission and ministry and goals Satan has had from the beginning. And what he is doing, Jesus, what Jesus is actually doing is undermining the power and the dominion Satan has on the world. And what he's really doing is he is reclaiming those who have been possessed by, owned by, controlled, managed by Satan. So Jesus makes a reference here to Isaiah chapter 49. It's helpful to hear these words where God says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. And I will save your children. Then all flesh shall know that I am Yahweh, your Savior, and your Redeemer, and the Mighty One of Jacob. This is amazingly good news for us, as it was for Old Testament Israel, and as it is for the people living in Mark 3. That Yahweh says, I will contend with those who contend with you. I will rescue those who are being held captive. You will know, no, all flesh will know, that I am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One. Because the contention between Yahweh and the one who has power presently is not an even match. Jesus will prevail. But now these scribes are coming and saying, well, he's actually only doing this because he's under the power of the biggest false god there is, the biggest demon of all time. And Jesus says, no, actually, I am come, I am. I am God, Yahweh, in the flesh, doing battle with Satan. I'm the strong man who has come to bind up Satan. And in casting out these demons, I'm releasing God's people from their captivity to these powers. I'm plundering Satan's house because I've tied him up. I think this is probably a reference to his first confrontation in the wilderness. But Jesus is clearly reclaiming lost humanity for himself. And so he goes on to say, the ultimate, most unforgivable sin is to say of Jesus, empowered as he is and was by his baptism, by the Holy Spirit, to say of him that he is operating now under the power of Satan, doing Satan's work. This, Jesus says, all other sins can be forgiven, even blasphemies. 
But if you want to persist in saying that Jesus is under the power and dominion of, the, of Satan himself and is doing Satan's work, and you persist in that, that is unforgivable. The final scene brings the family back together. Notice back in 20 and 21, they've come to the house. Jesus is in a house. He is so surrounded by people he can't even eat. No time, and he's pressed in, and his family have come to seize him. They believe he's out of his mind. They're probably coming to rescue him, maybe even institutionalize him if there is such a thing. But they believe he's out of his mind, which is just a euphemistic way of saying that demon-possessed. They're buying the story. And this places them on the side of the scribes from Jerusalem. But now down in uh, verse 31, toward the end of the chapter, Jesus is still in the house. Mark has given us that little exchange um, of the scribes and Jesus. and, And Jesus now is still sitting there, and people come to him because they've been sent to him by his family outside who can't get in. And he is told his mother and his brothers are standing outside waiting for him, and they want to see him. And Jesus gives this most astounding answer, first in the form of a question, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looks around at all those sitting around him. You can kind of imagine, I think, a sweep of the arm. Here, these people... These are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Six separate scenes in four different places, but watch now how Mark ties them all together. This is not just a bunch of random stories or events. We are only three chapters into the gospel, and, and the lines are clearly drawn. We have religious leaders and even uh, Jesus' own family lined up and in alignment, it seems, with the side of Satan and the evil spirits. The scribes and Pharisees are angry with Jesus because he has claimed to be God who can forgive sins. Remember the man lowered down into the house. They're angry with Jesus because he dines with sinners. They're angry with Jesus because he doesn't fast or his disciples don't fast. They're angry with Jesus because he claims to be the authority they believed themselves to be regarding Sabbath observance. He's undermining their authority, their understanding, their rigorous application of the law of God regarding the day. And if they can't immediately kill him, they're at least going to try to diminish his impact by claiming he's not just possessed by demons he's been casting out, but he is possessed by Satan himself, the prince of all demons. And they're so angry, in fact, that they are willing to align themselves with Roman sympathizers, the Herodians, who have probably much better chance of of getting the right authorities in line 
to kill Jesus, which, by the way, we know is where the story is headed. The same anger these Pharisees and scribes are showing to Jesus for all the variety of little ways he's undermining everything they thought they believed about themselves or about what it meant to be right with God. That same anger, ironically enough, stemming from the same Satan they claim owns Jesus, the same anger will nail this same Jesus to the cross for our sin. And what's more, here we have Jesus' own flesh and blood, Mary and his siblings coming to Capernaum to seek him, to seize him, because they believe he's gone mad. And on the other hand, we have crowds gathering, flocking, swarming to be near Jesus, hearing about what he is doing, watching him teach with authority, watching his miracles, and they're flocking to him from the furthest reaches of the nation of Israel. And from among these crowds, he, he moves from seaside to mountaintop, and he gathers to himself 12. He calls them apostles, and Jesus intends them to be with him and to be sent by him to preach and to have authority, to do, in other words, what he is doing. And by the end of the story, he is going to be with them again on a mountaintop, and he will say to them, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he sends them. During his time on earth with them, they are going to be witnesses, witnessing his miracles, hearing his teaching, experiencing firsthand also the opposition he endured. They will watch him be arrested. They will watch him be tried and condemned, and nailed to a cross, and die. And they will see him again after he is raised from the dead. And they will be empowered on Pentecost Sunday with the same Spirit who gave life to Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and who settled on him in his baptism, and who raised him from the dead in other words, they will watch Jesus in the power of the Spirit doing battle with Satan to reclaim all that lost territory that Satan had been possessing. And they will see Jesus do battle with the religious authorities, the very ones who should have recognized him to be the Messiah. But they will see Jesus in his death and resurrection destroy the power of Satan's kingdom. And they will remember in the words of Luke much later that they were with Jesus and they heard all that he began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. And he gave commands to them, the apostles he had chosen through the Holy Spirit. And as they, in the power of that same Spirit, go beyond the borders of Israel, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. These people who left their families behind, their own flesh and blood, to follow Jesus and who will call on other people to 
abandoned their greater loyalties to family to follow Christ. As they will come to know families who are, or people who are abandoned and rejected rather by their families because of their loyalty to Jesus, as they themselves are facing the same kind of opposition and hostility Jesus faced, this whole section will remind them and bring some comfort to them. Jesus is making a new family. These same people will, as we read in the book of Acts, will do battle in the early church about who Jesus really was. If you're in one of our life groups working your way through the book of Galatians, you will know that they do battle even sometimes with each other over the role of the Old Testament law, including Sabbath regulations and what all that meant in the life of a Gentile coming to Christ. Peter and then Paul and others will be opposed just as much by the Jewish establishment as they were by foreign powers. Like Jesus, they're going to face fraudulent trials and unpleasant deaths. But, and here's the point already in Mark chapter 3, these are men who will face all that having been with Jesus. Who are called to Jesus who come. Who are sent by Jesus who go. Who are granted authority. Who have a message and who are going, having been sent by Jesus, to do the very thing he had come to do. There's a story in Acts chapter 4 where they heal a man, they draw the attention and the anger of Jewish authorities, and they boldly proclaim Jesus of Nazareth as Lord, crucified and raised from the dead. And then we read this. Now when they, the religious really smart people, the ones with seminary educations and degrees, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus is going to use these 12. He gathers in the middle of this chapter and by his Spirit's power, use them to draw and to create a new humanity. Drawn not just now from the edges of the border of Israel in its best, most expansive days, but from the edges of the borders of the entire world. Jesus, who's not just on a mountaintop as a new Moses forming a new nation, but a new Adam forming a new humanity. Filling the earth with image-bearing worshipers that come from every nationality, every color, both genders, all kinds of family lines from everywhere. Greg Beale describes this moment in Mark's gospel like this. He says, Jesus' true family consists of those who trust in him, not those who are related to him by blood. 
And because Jesus has come to restore all of creation, including Gentiles, the true people of God can no longer be marked out by certain nationalistic badges that distinguish one nation from another. Therefore, really, and this is where Jesus ends the chapter, in order to become a true Israelite, in order to be part of Jesus' real family, one no longer needs to keep all those specific requirements of Israel's law that marked Israel out in contrast to all the other nations, including the ways they celebrated the Sabbath and all the extra layers the Pharisees had attached to that rule. Or we could put it this way. What does it take to be a member of the family of Jesus? Jesus says, obedience to his Father's will. What's his Father's will? That we believe in him and in the Son he sent. And that by the work of the risen and ascended Christ, through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit at work in these 12 men, Jesus gathers to himself, we now have all these years later, a great thronging crowd of adoring worshipers, rescued from the dominion of darkness and of Satan, defeated as he was at the cross and in the resurrection so that we might be drawn to Jesus like all these others who wanted and had heard about him and wanted to see and hear him themselves. Who Jesus says are now enfolded into his family, brought and rescued into the kingdom of light. Now defined not by who our parents or grandparents, or however far back we could trace our family tree, or however we imagine those bonds of affection and love we have for our family. And here, by the way, is good news for those of you who are not surrounded by immediate family or who have lost so many members of your family or who are only children or who are childless or however else you face life in this world. Your new constitution, the way you are put together, your way of being defined is you belong to Jesus and you are part of his family. Later, Peter, who is Mark's good friend, who's a source, we believe, of so much of Mark's gospel, he'll say of us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so again, if you are all by yourself in this world, or if your family, if everyone you once knew and loved and were a part of, if they have rejected you because you are following Christ, you're part of God's family, and, and I don't think Jesus just means here a family that has a mom and a dad and 2.2 kids sitting around a kitchen table enjoying a meal. But it is a transnational family that extends throughout all the ages. 
this is just a really, really, really small part of it. It's a growing, large family. The way it was supposed to have been through Adam before he messed it all up. A new heavens and a new earth populated by all kinds of people who look just like Jesus, where someone might see you and say, I think she was with him. I think he was with Jesus. They look a lot alike. You're part of the family. Welcome to it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your son, for his work, for his reclaiming work for us under once the power of Satan, now part of the family of Christ. Thank you for the ways this shapes or informs our relationships to each other and our relationships to every other Christian in the whole world throughout all the ages. Lord, would you not only keep us, but draw others to yourself in ways that would have us surrounding Jesus, pressing in even on him, desiring to know him and love him and worship him and hear from him and, and see him. Lord, if there are any here who do not know you yet, we pray that even on this day they might reckon with these two choices before them, whether they will follow that way of darkness or come into the light, whether they will be alienated and strangers from Christ or whether they will be welcomed and embraced, brought into the family with all the blessings and privileges that, that are ours in Him. Lord, we thank you that your spirit does this. Now receive our thanks and send us with your blessing. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people say together, amen.